CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. This election, Chicago voters are casting a ballot on much more than the president of the United States. Some of the races we will be voting on include the Cook County State's attorney, over 60 judges, our water reclamation district commissioners, and changes to our taxes. Springfield politician. Not now, Phyllis. With all these races, candidates, and issues, casting an informed ballot can seem like a challenge. But Chicago Votes, a nonpartisan organization, is here to provide you with information on the candidates and issues on the ballot. Their 2020 voter guide is available digitally at chicagovotes.com and chicagoreader.com. Pull it up on your laptop, take it with you into the voting booth on your phone, and feel confident in knowing who and what you are voting for. ChicagoVotes.com. This Ben Jarofsky Show, Benny J Bonus Interview, is brought to you in part by the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, Local 9, the International Union of Operating Engineers, Local 150, and the Chicago Federation of Labor. Benny J, take it away. Bonus time on the Ben Jarofsky Show as I speak. It's October 30th, 2020. Could be any time, though. It's a podcast. Lord knows when you're listening to this. By the way, I just have to give a shout out, D. That was hilarious. Uh, in the opening bit, we threw Phyllis in. Uh, regular listeners of the Ben Jarowski Show recognize that's uh, our good friend, Philly, uh, the retiree from Park Ridge, who somehow or other decided it was a good idea to do a commercial for the Vote No Fair Tax People, where she reads a script that's absolutely preposterous. One of the low points in campaigning ever in the state of Illinois. They promise they won't tax retirement income if their constitutional amendment passes. (laughs) Oh, Philly, Philly, Philly. I'm going to give you a word of warning. Don't believe anything a billionaire gives you. Hey, Philly, just read the script. Anyway, sorry, I didn't mean to go on that tangent. Uh, Bonus time on the Ben Jarofsky Show. Uh, We have plenty of interesting political discussion ahead of us. I'm going to read a headline that's in the Today's New York Times to give you a sense of what is in the news. And this headline is actually uh, apropos. I love using big words. uh, Today's conversation. We have a fight. Big stakes, but little investment in Texas. GOP losing ground in largest red state. Dare I say, could the Democrats take Texas in this presidential election? This is one of the many questions I'm going to be asking my distinguished guest. Distinguished guest, introduce yourself. Hi, Ben. Hi, Dennis. Uh, hi, everybody. It's great to be back. My name is David Ferris. I'm an associate professor of political science at Roosevelt University, the author of It's Time to Fight Dirty, and the kids are all left. And um, this is, uh, I don't know how many times I've been on the show, but it's, it's a lot. And I, I'm, every time. <laughs> yeah, he's a regular in the Ben Jarofsky show. Uh, if we uh, uh, were at the studio, I'd be charging him rent for all the time he comes in, but uh, we just do it virtually. All right, David, here's the setup. Uh, David and I uh, decided we're going to do it this way. Uh, we're going to talk Senate races first. We're close with the presidential race, get David's predictions and thoughts as we head into the election. Uh, Tuesday is the, the election. So we'll start with the Senate, and I'll set it up the way I, I said I would do it, David. All right, right now it's 53 to 47. Republicans hold the majority. OK, uh, if Joe Biden is elected, all the Democrats need is 50 Senate seats because the vice president would cast the deciding vote uh, in the case of ties. So all they would need if Joey B is elected president is to get it uh, to win 50 seats. If God help us all, <laughs> the country decides in its infinite idiocy to reelect Donald John Trump as its president, the Democrats would need to pick up uh, to get 51 seats because uh, Donnie would get the tiebreaker with Pence uh, if he uh, is the president. So that's the situation right now it's 53 republicans the democrats needed to get it to 50 uh if joe wins and they need to get to 51 if god help us all donald trump wins so uh with that as the setup david uh take it through what do you think are the winnable states for the democrats 
Sure. Um, let me just dispense with one scenario here, which is uh, Democrats winning the Senate, but Trump getting reelected. <laughs> I, don't, I just uh, if there's a you know, if Biden collapses in the last three days in that fashion. I, I just don't see the Democrats getting to 51 in the Senate. Uh, I don't even see him getting to 49 in the Senate if, if Trump wins. So um, that's not like it's not it doesn't look like that's what's going to happen. So um, in, in sort of order of likelihood of the pickups, um, the, the, t- the two that are pretty, you know, that are shoe ins at this point, I think there'd have to be like a world historical polling disaster to, to uh, have the Republican reelected in this race. Uh, Colorado, where Republican Cory Gardner is trailing former governor um, John Hickenlooper by double digits. And in Arizona, um, where Martha McSally <laughs> is also trailing her, her, her challenger, uh, Mark Kelly, who's a former astronaut and is the husband of Gabby Giffords, who was the victim of that horrendous act of gun violence uh, uh, during the Obama administration. Um, those two races look, look pretty much over, according to all of the polling that we've been seeing for, for three, four, five months. Um, a special note of thanks to Martha McSally. Uh, she would be the first person in American history to kick away both of her state Senate seats um, in, in the span of two years uh, because she lost <laughs> she lost to Kirsten Sinema in 2018. Uh, and then Doug Ducey, the governor, appointed her to John McCain's seat, and she looks like she can lose that too. So congratulations, Martha. Um, really wonderful achievement. Kelly um, just could never figure out who she was. Um, yeah. She came into office as like a moderate, and then she tried to go all Trumpy, and she's not very convincing at it. And her, her heart's not in it. Uh, and I don't think she's going to be in the Senate. So um, those those two races look like pretty pretty much done deals to me. Um, from there, you know, the math gets a little bit more difficult for Democrats. So. Um, the, the, I think the next two likeliest pickups are in Maine and North Carolina. So wait, hold on. Before you go there, let's just follow the math. So it's fifty-three to forty-seven right now. Uh, if you're correct, and I think you're absolutely correct by the polls, that the Dems win Colorado and Arizona. Now it's fifty-one, and all the Dems need is one more uh, in the case of a Joe Biden victory, or two more in the case of God help us all, Donnie Trump. Which I th- I think yeah. you're also correct. You're that is very unlikely uh, that Trump would uh, win, and the the Democrats take the Senate. However, However, let's just discuss. Let's just, just get this one out of the way early. Uh, Doug Jones this is an asterisk next to his name. He was running against some pervert whose name I can't remember. Oh, yeah, Roy Moore. How can I forget? Uh, in 2018, uh, to fill out uh, Sessions' term. Uh, and I think, David, you're convinced that Doug Jones will be defeated uh, in, uh, in Alabama. Yeah, I mean, unless Alabama gets hit with, like, another hurricane in a few days, I think, like, uh, Doug Jones is down uh, in some polls, you know, 13, 14, 15 points to this guy with the incredible name of Tommy Tuberville. Um, You can guess what Tommy Tuberville used to do for a living. It was coach college football, Um, and he is not a pederast, so he has that going for him, too. Um, So, like, uh, Doug Jones winning in 2017 um, in that special election was like, uh, what was that? I can't remember off the top of it. What was the guy, the senator that won here in 2010 in that Republican wave election year in Illinois, uh, Mark? Uh, uh, oh, 2010 uh, in, oh, well, how can I forget his name? Um, um, I can't believe I'm blanking on his name. I can you see know his why face. We're it? Because he was such a non-entity. Yeah. He's like disappeared from our, from our, from our memories. And it's like, you win this fluke election in a, in a state that has a, a heavy partisanship in the other direction, you're not likely to get reelected. Yeah. And I think that's going to be Doug Jones's fate, which is, it, it's a shame, honestly, because Doug Jones has been a great senator. He's a good guy. I hope he gets some kind of a spot in the Biden administration if he does go down. But that, that makes the, the math um, much, much more difficult for Democrats um, in the Senate because you have to subtract one yeah. and you need to do three, right? So you're, you're starting off with a disadvantage here, assuming that Doug Jones loses. All right, so we're um, at the 52, and then there's Michigan. And right. that's where Gary Peters is running for re-election. That's a very tight race. Your thought on, on Michigan? Yeah, it's it's a tighter race than, than you would expect given the top line numbers in Michigan, which have been pretty good for Joe Biden. Um, and there were a series of polls about two weeks ago um, that showed Peter is kind of deadlocked with John James, who's his challenger. And James is a, a African-American. He's a very appealing candidate. Um, but uh, we've, we've gotten some polling this week where I think the, the late movement in the race is towards Peter's. Um, and I think most people looking at this race expect, you know, Peter's and Biden to do about the same in Michigan. Uh, I think they, they have a lot in common. You know, um, neither one of them is beloved. <laughs> neither one of them is particularly exciting. Um, but in what looks to be a wave election year for Democrats, 
um, I think just pure straight ticket partisanship will carry Peters over the line and, and he will beat John James. Uh, I think by at least five points, maybe more. We'll see. Um, I'm not, I'm not as worried about Michigan as I was a couple of weeks ago. Um, especially with what looks to be some late movement for Democrats in the, in the polling in the, in the closing days of the race. So um, I, think that we can, right. I think we can strike that off your list of worries. Although if you're in Michigan. All right, so, then, so then now we're at 52. That's where we are right now for following uh, your scenario. Again, it was 53 uh, Republicans uh, when we began this conversation. We can gave the Dems Colorado and Arizona and took away uh, Alabama. So we're at 52. How do we get it to 50 or 49 uh, Republicans? Go ahead. Sure. Um, so I think the next two most likely races to flip are in North Carolina and Maine. And I honestly, I've never decided which one of these to rank higher. Um, I actually think Maine, just because the top line number for, for Biden in Maine is, is pretty staggering. I mean, he's up like more than double digits in Maine. He looks like he's going to win that congressional district that he lost to Trump. In 2016, remember, Maine is one of only two states to split its electoral votes. And the incumbent there is Susan Collins, who I think destroyed her career um, by, by voting for Brett Kavanaugh in 2018. Um, she, she won her race, her last race in 2014, by like 20-something points, um, maybe 30-something points. I have to double-check on that. But she was enormously pos- uh, popular in Maine until the Trump administration, when she has mostly failed to stand up for what... I don't know if you've ever talked to anybody from Maine, but they call themselves Mainers. <laughs> so she has refused to, to stand up for what Mainers want. Um, and, the, and and people in Maine have been pretty hostile to the Trump administration from day one. Uh, I think she's seen as mostly having capitulated to Donald Trump. And despite voting against Amy, Amy Coney Barrett um, last week, it doesn't seem to have rescued her in the polls. Um, they're relatively they're actually closer than the Kelly race and the, and the Hickenlooper race. Um, but I expect, again, the sort of straight ticket partisanship um, to, to be her doom. Her challenger is named uh, Sarah Gideon. She's a, a very appealing candidate. Uh, she was the Speaker uh, of the House of Representatives in Maine. And uh, I, I would expect her to, to win by the sort of high single digits. Um, and uh, that's going to be, a, honestly, that's going to be a great moment for me on election night um, because Susan Collins is just just the one of the best examples of one of these Republicans that could have stopped all of this stuff yeah. um, by, by switching parties in, in 2017, um, if she really had the courage of her convictions. But it seems like she's just been driven nuts by by negative partisanship, and she just hates Democrats. And uh, we hate her, and uh, we're going to get rid of her by season. Um, so. Before we move on, let's just also just take this moment to concentrate uh, on the death of moderates in the Republican Party killed by Trumpism. Uh, Yeah, you've talked on the show uh, several times, David, about her literally changing parties. But even without going that far, she could have been like more like John McCain and stood up to him like vote on impeachment, vote against Kavanaugh, you know, uh, take stands like a low wiker going back in time. But that's the last Republican I could think of who is actually of independent minded and was willing to break from the party and stand for certain principles. But th- that Republican type of moderate or independent minded, it just does not exist. And she was always afraid of Trump and a tweet and that's working against her. Correct. Yeah. And I, you know, she's just one of these people like, like McCain, honestly, um, where I just could not understand the incentive structure, you know, like Collins is in her seventies. Um, I, you know, I don't think she has a political future after this, unless she wants to be a, an extremely elderly governor of Maine. And, um, it, it just never, I never understood why, why people, who obviously disliked Trump and thought he was corrupt and, and dangerous um, and, and who were nearing the end of their lives and their careers were, were unwilling to, um, if not switch parties, then at least uh, sort of set some terms and conditions for, for getting their votes on other things, right? Like, why didn't she say, I want the, you know, we're not going to approve any judges until we get the tax returns, until you do X, Y, and Z. Um, yeah. The three of them, you know, McCain, Flake, and, and Collins could have switched parties, said, I'm, you know, and, and had a meeting with Schumer and been like, look, we're coming over. We're not going to do anything for you, <laughs> like legislatively. Like you're not getting any policies out of this. Um, we're, we're doing this to to stop the president from, um, you know, uh, from turning the, the White House into a, a cesspool of corruption and, and degrading American democracy. And they wouldn't have had to give Democrats any policy wins whatsoever um, if they if they had really wanted to to change the dynamic with President Trump and give him a hostile Senate. 
but they never had the courage of their convictions. I think people in Maine see that and understand that. Um, and I think the result is going to be that she's going to lose her seat. All right, let's move on to get uh, some other states to see. Uh, oh, no, you mentioned North Carolina. What's the situation in North Carolina? Oh, North Carolina. So um, the, the, there's a sitting uh, Republican senator named Tom Tillis um, who has been trailing his Democratic challenger, Cal Cunningham, for the entire cycle. Um, I, don't, I, don't, I don't actually really understand why, why Tillis is so, so unpopular. Um, but, uh, but he is. And, um, but there was a, there was a blip in this race, um, earlier this month when, I don't know if you remember this, but Cal, Cal, Cal Cunningham had some sort of affair with a, with a, a staffer and, uh, they released the text messages of, of this affair and they were like, you know, by the standards of the era, they were like the most, uh, uh hilariously <laughs> plain, uh, you know, vanilla texts. It was like, I might meet you somewhere. And it was like, I might meet you there too. It's going to be really hot, you know? Um, and, uh, you know, in a context in which the president of the United States, um, you know, slept with a porn star uh, when his infant son was born, I, I feel like it just didn't register with people anymore. In fact, hilariously, um, Cunningham's numbers with men went up after that scandal. Oh, you're kidding. Of course. Oh, is that a joke? No, I'm afraid of that. Um, so, <laughs> so he gained ground with men. Wow. Men, by the way, men, come on, man. You know, like, let's, let's get it together here. Um, so he lost a little ground with women and he gained the ground with men. And the, and the polls have kind of snapped back to where they were, which is Cunningham has like a five to seven point lead. Um, which is, you know, not outside the margin of error, but it, but it, it feels pretty safe. And uh, I think that Tom Tillis will be retired on election night. And so that that gets us to 50, right? So um, right. Collins is 51, Cunningham is 50. And uh, so if you, you know, you pick up four, you lose one, that's 50, that's a 50-50 Senate. But I can't emphasize enough um, how unhappy I would be <laughs> yeah. with that outcome because that leaves Joe Manchin, um, as like the kingmaker of American politics in a, in a tied Senate, yeah. um, Kamala Harris would have to break the tie for any, um, Joe Manchin, the squish to end all squish, not just to 51. Ideally, if we really want to get things done, we'd get to 52 or 53. So, um, you know, we can talk about how we might get there. All right. So let's see how, uh, and plus, uh, uh, Joe Manchin is uh, the Senator from West Virginia, just to help folks out a little bit. And he is, yes, uh, been known, uh, to, to head into MAGA country from time to time. I believe he voted for Kavanaugh as well. Uh, when Susan, Susan Collins gave him the green light and he went for it. As I recall, that's my memory. My, I think I'm right about that, David. All right. So no, what yeah, do you yeah, to get yeah, He was uh, locked in a very difficult re-election campaign and you know west virginia is uh you know redder than mercury so i, I guess he felt like he had to do it um but he's always been a party switching risk you know and i, I like in a 50 50 senate I, i'm really worried that the gop would make him an offer he can't refuse and then we would just lose the senate even though we want it you know all right so then uh who are the the other seats that we could pick up uh to have a little security there right so there's a bunch um the I think the most likely seat after um, North Carolina is in Iowa, um, where there's an incumbent Republican named Joni Ernst, who, uh, I don't know if you remember, she gave the State of the Union response in, uh, in 2014 or 20, 2015. It must have been 2015. And, uh, you know, when she was like, you know, I'm going to make, you know, all her campaign ads in 2014 were about like how they were going to make um, uh, people in Washington squeal, you know, because she was she was like a pig farmer, you know, and, and she was going to make people squeal. <laughs> and, uh, she's, she's a well-spoken person. Uh, she was thought to be a rising star in the party. Um, but she's unpopular in Iowa and she is trailing her democratic challenger, Teresa Greenfield narrowly, uh, in public opinion polling. And that's going to be a close race. The, the Iowa is going to be a close race. Um, but if, if you, if you put a, a gun to my, please don't, but if you put a gun to my head right now, <laughs> I would say, I would say, I think that Greenfield has the edge in this race, and that that is the most likely place that we're going to get our fifty-first seat in the Senate. Now, what? It, why is? I mean, Joni Ernst, uh, Gail Collins, columnist for the uh, New York Times, has been making fun of Joni Ernst for her commercials uh, from two thousand fourteen. Talk about yes, yeah, squealing pigs. I think castrating pigs and just all kinds of weird. Uh, imagery regarding uh, pigs, but why? She got elected even or maybe because of those commercials, what has happened? What has changed to make her vulnerable in your humble opinion? 
Yeah, I mean, it's it's a microcosm of what's happened in Iowa. You know, I, let's let's assume we'll get to this later, but let's assume that Joe Biden's going to win by eight points. OK, um, and that's a six point shift nationally from from 2016 and a six point shift nationally from 2016 would, would not be enough to put um, Democrats over the top in Iowa, where uh, where Trump won um, by by over nine points. Um and so what's going on in Iowa is I think that there's a small subset, particularly of, of farmers, who are really unhappy with, uh, with President Trump's trade war with China. Um, they are resentful that they were put through several years of hardship and suffering and, and had to be bailed out. I think there's a perception that the bailouts of the farmers were corrupt and went largely to the, to the larger farmers. Um, and just a, just a sense that, that President Trump just took, took everyone in Iowa for granted and didn't care about them. And, and could have sacrificed him for their larger ideological goals. And so I think Ernst is, is suffering from that perception of being tied too closely to Trump and not willing to stand up to Trump. Um, and I think that the, she was operating on the assumption that, you know, 2016 made Iowa a red state and put it out of, put it out of reach forever. And um, because the national environment has moved so sharply democratic, that's just not true. And I think it's particularly not true for her because she ran as this like sort of authentic you know, truth-telling, uh, mavericky type person, and it turns out she's just Trump's lackey, and I don't think that's very appealing to people in Iowa. Now, she's not going to lose by like six or seven points or anything. Like, if we pick up the seat, it's going to be it's going to be razor thin margin. Um, you know, fifty-one forty-nine, or, or you know, a race decided in the thousands of votes. Um, but I but I do think that most people looking at this think Greenfield has the edge here. And uh, all right, so uh, what are the other states that uh, you think the Democrats have a good chance for? All right, let's talk about Georgia um, because <laughs> I've got Georgia on my mind right now. Um, I just I just wrote a piece about this for the week, and um, you know Biden has a lead in Georgia of almost two points, uh, according according to the five thirty eight averages. Um, the polling there has been trending Democratic, and there's two Senate races in, in Georgia this year. Yeah. There is a regular race where there's an incumbent, um, David Perdue, uh, who's being challenged by John Ossoff. You, you may remember him from 2018. He was the he was the baby-faced Democrat um, who was who was trying to flip a, an open seat um, in Georgia's sixth district, and <clears throat> it was the most uh, famous sort of early special election in the Trump era. And Democrats poured just an obscene amount of money into that race, only to lose it. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And then to see somebody else win it, um, Lucy, Lucy McBath uh, actually won that race in 2018 that, that Ossoff had lost. And a lot of people kind of wrote him off um, as a, you know, kind of a lightweight kind of a young guy. But he kind of he stormed back. He won the Democratic primary in Georgia in June. And now he's he's faced off with uh, with uh, with Purdue. And that race has been a, a dead heat the whole time. Um, you know, like a 47, 47 type of situation. But I think a couple of things have happened in the last week that, that make me think that Asaf might be the slight favor here. Um, one is they had a debate the other night. I don't know if you saw this debate. Um, it's, uh, it features among my favorite debate moments of, of recent memory, um, where, where Asaf, to, uh, who, who's like a, you know, if I, if I might say, he's like a young, good looking guy. Um, and he turned to Purdue, who's like a, you know, just like a fossilized vulture. And, uh, and was like, uh, it's not just that you're a crook, Senator, you know, it's that you are attacking the health of the people that you claim to represent. And he talked about the insider trading scandal that, that enveloped um, Senate Republicans in, earlier in the year um, when they received a, a private briefing on, on January 24th from public health, health officials about how bad the virus was going to be. And then a bunch of them went out and they dumped their stocks. Yeah. And, yeah. <laughs> and uh, you know, most of those investigations, I think, have wrapped up, but um, this is like the DOJ and the Senate ethics committee doing these investigations. So, and they're not like the, the best messengers for, for clearing uh, the names of these senators. And uh, so Purdue is not super popular. Um, Asaf had a great moment the other night. He's led five of the seven public polls that were taken this week. And um, I know we're all worried about polling error and like, what if it's like 2016 and all the polls are off and, you know, we have all these nightmare scenarios in the back of our heads, but the polling in Georgia has been very, very good this, this decade. Um, in 2018 and in 2016 and in 2012, um, the, the final polls for all the statewide races in Georgia were within a point or two of, of the outcome. So I don't anticipate the polls being, being off there. And I think um, uh, not only did Ossoff like kind of wipe the floor with him in this debate, but then Purdue pulled out of the last debate to go to a Trump rally and to, and to hide behind Donald Trump. Um, <laughs> yeah. I, just, I don't think that's going to wear well with, with Georgia's voters. 
Yeah, that uh, I've talked about that um, in terms of congressional races in Illinois. But let me raise this to you in terms of the, the Georgia race. Republicans running to Trump at this point, and I'm I'm doubtful about how much help that is. So, for instance, when I talk about, uh, I was talking about in terms of Illinois, the Jim Overweiss race, he's running against Lauren Underwood, and he was very happy that Donald Trump, the paper said, a big win for Overweiss, he got Trump to tweet out of support. I'm like, you already got MAGA's vote. Like, right. you know, I don't get it. I mean, it's not like, oh, I didn't know. It's a MAGA guy wakes up. And, I mean, they're dumb, but they're not that dumb. You know, I mean, they know who the Republican is. So, Skipping a debate in Georgia to go stand next to Donnie Trump, I don't see that how it's going to help you with voters that you need outside of, you know, the MAGA cult. Help me out yeah. here, David. It makes no sense. It's not going to help. It's not going to help Overwise. I mean, uh, Lauren Underwood is a very popular incumbent. I think she's going to win easily. Um, and uh, in Georgia, you know, uh, Matt Kemp did the same thing in 2018. He skipped the last debate with Stacey Abrams. To go to go hide behind Trump and and Kemp ended up winning narrowly, and so these are not very clever or creative people, and so they they're like, what? Well, uh, 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 Matt Kemp did it and it worked. Brian so it too, and it's Brian like Kemp. less popular than he was in 2018. Yeah. Um, there's a there's a world historical disaster unfolding before us, um, and and Trump doesn't care. He like went and caught the virus on purpose, uh, and and he like had his chief of staff go out and be like, uh, we're not going to control the pandemic. It's like okay. That's, I mean, that's a plan, I guess. Um, but I, I just, uh, I think that, you know, I think the last week of the race, the president has has made a series of really idiotic uh, sort of strategic decisions, including um, let's talk about Hunter Biden all the time. And so um, I, I don't think that David Perdue is going to save himself by, by embracing the president. If anything, he probably could save himself by distancing himself from, from the president, but he won't do that. Um, and so... I wouldn't put money on this race, but I do think that Ossoff is, is more likely to win than, than not at this point. All right. I um, just want to tell everybody, you can tell that uh, David Ferris is a baseball fan because he keeps calling Brian Kemp, Matt Kemp. Matt Kemp is a baseball player, pretty good hitter, played for the Dodgers, I want to say. Uh, and I, I believe the governor of uh, Georgia is Brian Kemp. And who am I? I just called him Matt Kemp in an article. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Better quick. Get, get rewrite. Uh, it's okay. I do it all the time. I uh, suffer from dyslexia. I'm always reversing and throwing the wrong names on people. Um, All right. That's for sure. (laughs) Now is my understanding, and I could be wrong here. Yeah. If uh, nobody gets more than 50%, there's a runoff. Am I correct? Uh, in the, in the Purdue race. So, Oh my God, I can just imagine if it comes down to Georgia, there's going to be two runoffs and I'll be drinking heavily. (laughs) No, and they take place on January 5th. That's the day before the new Congress uh, will have to vote in the Electoral College. So if, if things get really complicated and there's like disputes about electors on, on January 6th, um, there could be a real race to get these two people seated and sworn in in the Senate. Uh, it's, it, could be, it could be a real mess. I mean, hopefully it's not going to be a mess. But Georgia does present the possibility of a, of a mess, I think. Because it's a, it's mostly a two person race. Um, I think there's a decent chance that we'll get somebody will get to fifty percent in Georgia. Yeah, um, but it's also certainly possible that they won't. Um, but of course, we have another race in Georgia, so that's where things get really that's where things get really interesting. <laughs> All right, talk about the other race because that is a convoluted one. Yeah, um, if I had to rank the the second race in Georgia in a, in a pure like what I'm seeing in the polls sense, um, I actually would put it above. Um, I'd put it above Iowa and I would put it above the Ostoff race in terms of the likelihood that the Democrat wins that race. Um, this is a, this is a special election to fill out the term of Johnny Isaacson, the Republican Senator who retired in 2019 um, because he was struggling with um, Parkinson's. Um, and also um, he was part of a, you know, a wicked and evil Senate majority that was uh, you know, destroying American democracy. So, um, <laughs> and uh so, but he was very popular in Georgia and, uh, Brian, Brian Kemp. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Brian Kemp and his infinite wisdom appointed to that seat, uh, uh of extremely clueless businesswoman called Kelly Loeffler, um, who owns a WNBA franchise and she's married to one of these hedge fund weirdos and she's richer than God. <laughs> and uh, she was one of the chief people caught up in this, um, you know, in this, uh, stock dumping scandal back in March. Um, and she has not recovered her popularity. Um, one of the other 
things that's bad for the Republicans in this race is that she has a Republican challenger in this, uh, you know, you can call it like a jungle primary, right? Um, so it's the same thing, right? If you don't get to 50%, we have a January 5th runoff. And uh, she's running against Doug Collins, who was also lobbying to be appointed to that seat. Collins is a, 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 just a rabid Trumpite, you know, just a MAGA all the way down. And uh, they have been outflanking one another to the right in this primary. At one point, Kelly Loeffler, I don't know if you saw this, Kelly Loeffler ran an ad. I encourage all of your listeners to watch campaign ads from Republican primaries in the, in, you know, in, in red states, because it's like really something. Yeah. But she ran an ad um, where she claimed that she was to the right of Attila the Hun. Yeah. Uh, um, and it was just an incredibly bizarre ad. Yeah. Um, second weirdest ad I've seen in the whole cycle. The weirdest was Amy, Amy, Amy McGrath ran this ad in Kentucky. She's running against Ms. McConnell. And it was like a cartoon and Ms. McConnell was a turtle and dragging the floor away. <laughs> I was like, what are people thinking? You know, like if you need to, if you're wondering what to do with your life, political advertising, like really needs your ideas. Yeah. Um, and so <laughs> a couple of months ago, I think that you would have said this was a toss up race. Um, again, it's a race that's, it's only a two year term, right? So um, yeah. it's, it's uh, I think a little bit less consequential in the long term, but in the short term, it could really give Democrats some breathing room. And uh, the, there's uh, multiple Democrats in the race. Um, one is named Ralph Warnock. He's a, a pastor, uh, African-American, very, very uh, charismatic guy. Um, and the, the chief Democratic rival to him was, guess whose kid? Oh, God, kid? yeah, Lieberman, yes. Oh, Lieberman, kid, Matt Lieberman. Oh, my God. Yeah. Gadflies of the 21st century, please go away. Yeah. So I think uh, party activists sort of, coordinated this campaign for Warnock and against Lieberman and Lieberman is now down to like 3% in the polls oh. and Warnock um, could, could actually win 50% on election day. I think it's, I think it's unlikely, but he's polling in the high forties um, in, in the primary. And then when you match him up against either Loeffler or Collins, he just clobbers them both. Um, and so unless there's a really significant shift in the electorate or the national environment, in January, um, I actually, I think Democrats are, are much more likely than not to pick that seat up. And you might think, well, if Democrats, if Biden wins and, and Democrats take the Senate and the House, there might be some people that are like, well, we should put a check on them, you know, by, yeah. by at least having one of these seats go Republican. But uh, just remember, like Trump is still going to be around yeah. doing um, Trump stuff throughout November yeah. and December. Um, there's no getting away from this guy. He's going to, you know, he's going to die hard. Um, you know, he's, he's gonna, he's gonna go out ugly, as ugly as is humanly possible. Um, and I think that the environment will probably be unchanged, whatever it is on November 3rd on Tuesday, I think it's probably gonna be unchanged. So I'm, I'm pretty bullish on that race in particular, even more so than the Ossoff race. All right. Uh, and there's two states that are, are on my mind as exceedingly unlikely, uh, for Democrats to win. And yet I've got this feeling. If it's really a, uh, a Democratic year uh, that it could work the Democratic way, one is Alaska, the other is Montana. Uh, let's start with Alaska. I, I'm trying to think the last Democratic senator from Alaska at the moment. It's was it Gruning? It's a no, Mark, Mark Beggich, um, wow. who won in 2008. Um, in the Obama oh, more recently. Yeah, it's more recent yeah. than I realized. Yeah. yeah so uh, Alaska, Alaska has a real independent streak. Yeah. So what's your thoughts about the Alaskan race? Well, I think that there was a, there was a lot of hope um, placed in the, so the Democratic, well, he's not a Democrat, he's an independent. His name is Al Gross, he's a doctor. Uh, he's a pretty, pretty appealing figure. And the incumbent Republican is named Dan Sullivan. And he's um, kind of a non-entity, right? I mean, he's not, he's not radioactive or anything, but he's not, um, he's not particularly prominent nationally. And Alaska's like, Alaska's a weird place. You know, it's, it's hard to poll. Um, pollsters mostly don't bother. Um, you often get election results that, that are, you know, just like wildly divergent from the existing polling. It's obviously a Republican leaning place. And so Sullivan, you would think would have the advantage. Um, <clears throat> but he's mostly had a, a, a lead in the, in the single digits and the small handful of polls that we've had. And so gross is within striking distance. I think that there was some energy on the left to pour money into this race because it's such a small, sparsely populated state that your, you know, your media money can go a long way. And, um, the, the best poll that we have of, of Alaska was from the New York times, the Siena poll. And, uh, Sullivan had a, had a small lead, you know, within, again, within the margin of error. Um, I think in a context where we have a big democratic wave on Tuesday, where, where, where things break late for, for Joe Biden and the Democrats, 
Algros could, could certainly win. Um, I would definitely not put my, I would not put any money on this race, um, but it's certainly on a small list of three or four races that I think um, if things really, really get away from Republicans on Tuesday, um, the Democrats have a real shot at this race. I hope that the, I hope the, the Democratic uh, Senate campaign committee is, is, uh, is properly resourcing this race. I hope people are making calls and donating money. Um, it's a real possibility. I think it's, it's more of a long shot than anything we've talked about so far. Um, but, uh, but they could definitely get there. But I also think it's probably less likely than the, than the Montana race. All right. Uh, what my, so you don't have much hope for Montana? No, I do. I do. Um, the Montana race has, has been deadlocked. So the, that race is between Steve Daines, who's a, an incumbent Republican and, uh, um, the, the sitting uh, democratic governor who's, whose name is Steve Bullock. And, um, Bullock, you, you may remember, did one of these like cameo runs for, for president back yeah. last summer when yes, he was one well. of like 17 yeah. different um, white dudes who kind of looked and sounded the same. And uh, <laughs> and he ran for his thing was like, I've been really good on campaign finance reform. And it's like, oh, <laughs> <laughs> I know it's not really working in this. Oh, yeah. read the room, man. Nobody cares about this right now. And yeah. uh, maybe they, um, but uh you know, Montana is not as red of a state as, as most of the other places in the, in the plains. Um, it's a state already has one democratic Senator John Tester. It has a democratic governor. It's a, it's a place where partisanship seems less sharp and where, you know, conservation and environmentalism, I think has real appeal to people. And so Bullock has a chance. I mean, you're, you're fighting pretty strong partisan headwinds there. And uh, if, if we learn anything from 2018, it's that, these states, these red states where you, you're running like sort of former Democratic governors um, because they're the most popular politician in the state for the Democrats um, didn't, didn't really end well in, in like Tennessee. Um, it didn't end well in Indiana in 2016 with Evan Bayh. And yeah. um, I think if you, you know, if you were like, what's most likely to happen here, I think probably Steve Daines is, is likely to get reelected by a few points. But um, again, uh, I think that we're in a situation where um, I think Democrats are more likely to overperform than underperform their polling. Um, and if that's the case, um, I think the polling can come over the top. Right? So I think that Biden would need to get to a nine to 10 point margin nationally in order to pull Bullock over the top with him. But if we do, if we do see Biden win, you know, 55, 45 or, or you know, 56, 44, I definitely think he'll bring, he'll bring Bullock with him. So um, I think that those two races will move in tandem with one another. Um, I think Montana is slightly more more likely to flip than, than Alaska, but I would, I would definitely put them in the same kind of the same tier. All right. Uh, and these are two races in these next two States that I, I can never imagine thinking a black Democrat could win. And yet there's hope South Carolina and Mississippi, Mississippi. Damn you, Mississippi yeah. as the song says, uh, break it down of those two States. Sure. I mean, so I think that there's there's a there's a next tier after Montana and Alaska that actually includes four states, um, and so that's Kansas, um, Mississippi, wow. South Carolina, and Texas. And I think that the Democrats in these races are probably in roughly the same position. Um, I think the one that's most likely to to flip is in South Carolina, um, where Lindsey Graham, who who really over the last four years has turned himself into just a just a lick spittle of Donald Trump in a, in a just a shameless and disgusting way. Um, and he has managed to alienate like um, Democrats in South Carolina who are outnumbered. But he also was somebody that um, was really outspoken against Trump before Trump took office. And so there's some Republicans in South Carolina who don't like him either because they remember when, you know, he was saying, you know, Donald Trump is unfit for office. He's a carnival barker or whatever. You remember all the names we used to call this dude before he became president? Oh, yeah. Um, and so Graham is, I think, in a, uni in a uniquely dis difficult position. Um, I think he's also, you know, to be honest, I think he gets hurt a little bit with these like Southern white evangelicals because, um, because of all these rumors that, that he's gay. <laughs> um, and uh, I, I don't want to lean into any of that stuff. I think it's uh, even when we're talking about Lindsey Graham, I think that's below the belt, but I, I, I honestly think it kind of hurts him. So he's in a dead heat with Jamie Harrison, um, who's a, an African-American candidate. Um, also, also pretty, um, you know, pretty charismatic guy. And uh, Jamie Harrison of all, I can, all the campaigns I can remember in the last 10 years, Jamie Harrison has been like the most aggressive raising money on, on all of my social networks, you know, um, with these, you know, like it's just the genre, but it's like, you know, we're in a dead heat, like please five more dollars. We'll beat the deadline. We're going to match it five times. 
all of which seems like a lie, but um, <laughs> in any case, it's, it's, it's a deadlock, you know? I mean, I think that um, the polling averages, um, Graham might have a one or two point lead over Harrison. In, in a state like South Carolina, just like in Montana, uh, it's like we have a candidate that's at 46, 47% like Harrison. What you worry about is like, where's the extra 3% gonna come from, yeah. you know? Um, and so I, I'm, I'm still skeptical of all this whole tier of races that the Democrats could win. I think Biden really does need to post double digits, um, for, for Harrison to win South Carolina, but I think it's, I think it's certainly possible. Um, and, uh, I'm, I'm much less, I'm a little bit less optimistic about Mississippi, um, where Mike Espy, the Democrat is challenging, uh, truly, a truly repub, uh, repugnant, uh, Republican incumbent named Cindy Hyde Smith. Um, who didn't, it's, this is a rematch from, um, uh, from last year, uh, from 2018, sorry. And, uh, you know, Hyde Smith's margin of victory was in the single digits. I think it gave people hope that Mississippi was trending blue, but the, but the top line presidential numbers are, are pretty decisively Trump. And again, just in this era of, of, of sort of solid partisanship, it's, it's, it's just hard for me to see SB getting over the line. Um, in the long view, we want to take a 20 year view of Mississippi, um, I think the demographic trends there are very favorable for Democrats. Um, but, uh, I just, I just don't think this is the year, um, for, for that to happen. But, uh, again, when you have a, when you have a big wave election, Ben, you can win seats that you, you don't expect. And that's why they, you, that's why you want to put good candidates, um, even in races that seem like stretches, because in the event, um, that things really tip against the, the, the opposing party, um, you want to have a credible candidate in place. And Mike, Mike Espy is, is definitely a credible candidate for that race. Yeah. Well, the, uh, Mike Espy is a black man as is uh, Jamie Harrison. Uh, and this is one of the twists of the South. Uh, it's easier, I think, for a black man who's Republican like Tim Scott uh, to get elected statewide than it is for a Democrat because, yeah. Uh, a black man who's running as a Republican uh, is telling white people exactly what they want to hear. And when it comes from a black person, it's like a double bonus. Uh, and a guy like Mike Espy uh, can't just tell white people what he, he uh, they want to hear because it goes against like everything his supporters believe in that he believes in and that he was always believed in. So it's really a disadvantage. It's And it's so bizarre to think uh, but I always, you know, whenever young black people, hey, man, if you don't care and you want to make money, you go just go to they'll pay you. Those Republicans oh, yeah. will pay you to say whatever, you know, maybe after a while you even believe it. Plot at, the, at the RNC, I mean, if Republicans weren't such like hopeless racists, they, they would make Tim Scott the leader of the party after this election. Um, but I, I just think that they're too <laughs> just too racist for it. Um so yeah, the other thing about the South um, is that you know up here, like college-educated white voters um, in the Upper Midwest and in the Northeast and the in the in the West have become heavily Democratic um, constituency over the last um, six to eight years, but white voters in the South just like have not moved, um, yeah. and so that's what's really keeping Republicans afloat across that whole region um, in in Georgia, in Mississippi, in South Carolina, uh, in North Carolina. Um, there's not been a ton of movement of college educated whites towards Democrats. And so that's why um, in a place like Mississippi where, um, where, where white voters just, you know, they just have a a demographic edge there. Um, I just don't see how, I just don't see how SB gets over the line. Um, You know, unless we win by 15 points or something, you know, and I, I I don't think that's super likely. Um, All right. Kansas and Texas. Kansas and Texas. Yeah. Um, Texas is a place where, God, I wish that Beto O'Rourke had, had run for Senate rather than president. Um, yeah. Democrats have a decent candidate there. Her name is MJ Hagar. Um, she ran unsuccessfully for the House in 2018. She's uh, an Air Force veteran. I find her quite appealing, um, but she, she doesn't have a, the same kind of national profile that Beto did, and she's not raising the same kind of money that Beto did. And people don't hate the incumbent, John Cornyn, like they hated Ted Cruz. <laughs> so yeah. it hasn't been as high profile. Um, you know, Cornyn has a, a low single digit lead in most of the polling I'm seeing. He's in fact, out, you know, he's outperforming Trump in Texas. Um, so we'll get, you know, obviously get to that in a minute. But um, uh, it, it's, yeah, I think it's unlikely that, that Hager is going to overcome that, um, that deficit. Although one thing I will say um, is that all the polls I've seen of Texas have both candidates in the low forties. Um, so even where you see Cornyn with the lead, 
it's like 45, 39, you know, rather than 52, 46. Mm-hmm. And that suggests to me, um, that there's possibility of a late movement towards Hagar. It's, it, it means, um, if we do have this massive turnout in Texas, which we definitely will, um, kind of all bets are off. Um, I, I, uh, I did an interview with, with Texas monthly, um, about a month ago. Um, and, uh, so I've been in contact with that writer and, and he said, you know, the, the vote number where Republicans get really nervous in Texas is 10 million. Um, and we are already uh, at over 9 million votes cast in Texas and the election hasn't even happened yet. And we still have another um, day of early voting. So Texas seems likely to get to 12 million votes. Um, to be honest, I'm not sure pollsters know how to model that. Um, it's just unprecedented. And so I wouldn't, I wouldn't be surprised if Cornyn lost. Um, yeah. I, I think it's probably 70, 30, but um but certainly, if there's if this if this surge in Texas is driven largely by young voters, um, Latinos, people who have not voted before, um, you, you could see Texas flip at the presidential level. You could see Cornyn lose a seat. You could see the Texas legislature flip, at least the House of Representatives. You could see a bunch of sitting Republican members of the House lose their seats. I think that's all on the table. Um, I just you know I have no real way to make that prediction because we're just in uncharted territory in terms of turnout in Texas. It is uncharted. And I believe the headline I saw flash across my phone uh, earlier today, uh, David, before I started doing all these uh, uh, interviews on the with on the podcast, is that already more people have voted in this uh, election 2020 than voted in 2016 total. Yeah, I think I believe I saw that. So already more people in Texas have voted. Um, yeah, I haven't, I haven't looked at the early vote numbers since this morning, but I think, yeah, I think that they were projected to eclipse the overall vote in 2016 today, today, which so, is, we're, yeah, we're off the track. Pretty amazing. And, yeah. and, uh, the governor of Texas, a Republican, a MAGA hat wearer, did everything he could to deter people from voting. Uh, he, uh, limited the number of drop boxes in counties to one, no matter how big the county as populous it was so that uh, MAGA country, there was uh, far fewer people had to depend on the drop box than in where the Repu- uh, Democrats were. Republicans think they're slick. They do anything they can to win, but even that has not deterred. Um, so, uh, Abbott, that's his name. That's the Republican governor of Texas. Oh boy. Tried. Donnie, he tried, but uh, I don't know if it's working. Uh, no, I think uh, voter suppression stuff is really backfiring on them, you know, um, because people see through it at this point. It's been going on for, for 15, 16 years where they're trying to devise new ways to prevent people from voting. And I think people have just had enough, I think particularly in this election cycle. People have been trapped in their houses for eight months, you know? Yeah. <laughs> people don't have anything else to do except stand in line for the one drop box. Yeah. Uh, You're right. Yeah, I think it's going to backfire. I don't know if it's going to deliver Texas, but I, I think that if, if nothing else, it, it's going to accelerate the the trend in Texas towards towards Democrats. And it may, in fact, be a true toss up state in, by 2024. Well, I, I have been accused by many of my lefty friends uh, of, of voter shaming. They say I do it way too often. <laughs> but I always point out to my lefty friends, no one has a lower estimate or estimation of the intelligence of the American voter than the Republican Party. And, uh, you know, and, and as well they should, because look who they elected as their leader. So, uh, but even I, vote shamer that I am, uh, have figured that the American voter will not be deterred by these uh, tactics of suppression. Kansas, let's move to Kansas. Uh, you're not in Kansas anymore, Dorothy. It's, what's going on in Kansas? This is the last on the list. Um, this is a place where, for once in their lives, Republicans made the safer choice in the primary. They, they, um, they forwarded uh, Roger Marshall, who's a, just a sort of standard issue Republican politician, instead of Chris Kobach, who, who was a uh, former governor, a gubernatorial candidate in Kansas who, who lost in 2018. And it's just a, just a bloodthirsty, you know, nativist jerk. And so the Republicans at the national level were like terrified that Kobach would win the seat. And they thought, I think when Roger Marshall won the primary, that they would be safe. But Democrats in their primary chose Barbara Bollier, who is a former Republican. She parted, she switched parties um, in the Trump era. And so that race has also been in the single digits. And it's another race where I think she's run a very good campaign. Again, I encourage people to watch ads where she, you know, in, t- in Kansas, she has to say, 
I, I would be happy to work with President Trump and the Republicans. Uh, I'll be working across the aisle. Like the only way you can get elected in a place like Kansas. Kansas went Trump by 20 something points. So, but um, if you look at the polling, you know, Trump is, is up in Kansas by half the margin he was in 2016. Um, Bollier is, 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 out, is outperforming uh, Biden in Kansas. And so it's certainly possible that she could win. Of all the races that we have talked about today, I think it's the second least likely behind Mississippi to, to flip. But it's uh, but it's but we have a good candidate, and again, if there's a if there's a huge surge in Democratic turnout, um, you know Republicans have really been banking on election day turnout. Yeah, uh, if things get you know if people think there's no way Trump is going to win, Republican election day turnout might not be what they think it will be. Um, most most of the analysts I read think that they will turn out, but there's some risk there in running a strategy where you discourage people from using the the safest and easiest option to vote in a pandemic. <laughs> and force them to march to the polls because the pandemic is out of control right now in a lot of these places, especially in a lot of the states with competitive Senate races. So I think Republicans have taken a real risk here, forcing their voters to brave the, the third wave of the, of the coronavirus spike in order to reelect some of their candidates. And certainly um, I, it's another race I would not be surprised if, if Bollier won. It's different. I would be surprised. I would be really surprised if my guest be pulled it out of Mississippi, but I wouldn't be surprised here. I just think it's not nearly as likely as some of the other races. All right. So when you add it all together, uh, you have the Democrats uh, walking away from this uh, election with approximately 52 Senate uh, seats, which is enough to take the majority, which is enough if it's a, if Biden is victorious uh, to approve judges and uh, puts Democrats in charge of all the committees, gives them a greater right. voice, gives Bernie Sanders Dems a greater voice in budget matters. But now we're at uh, the big race and all this power in the Senate is largely contingent or to a degree. Oh, wait a minute. How can I forget? Will the turtle be reelected in the Kentucky? Will, yeah, the turtle will be reelected. Kentucky is just a, it's a landslide Republican state. And McConnell is less popular, I think, than a generic Republican just because he takes all of the, the sort of the national heat for the terrible things that Republicans are doing. He's not especially popular in Kentucky, but the bridge is the bridge is just too far there. Yeah. Um, it, it'd be like a Republican trying to win in California at this point. And so, Democrats made the wrong choice, I think, in the primary. Um, Amy McGrath is not a great candidate. Um, I think that she, uh, I think, uh, her opponent, whose name is escaping me right now, who's who's a, a black Democrat, I think, would have been <clears throat> much better at, at possibly getting Democrats over the line in that state. And McGrath has been trailing by double digits uh, in, in every poll that, that I've seen. So. You know, honestly, like if we're going to take back the Senate with 52, 53, 54 seats, I'd rather Mitch McConnell have to just like suffer in the minority <laughs> than yeah. getting like Tom Daschle out of office. Like, uh, you know, I, I feel like I want to make him squirm. I want to make him feel again what it's like to be in the minority. I'd love to see the look on his face when we pack the courts. And um, it would just be kind of satisfying to, to watch him twist in the wind there. So I'm just trying to put a little uh, you know, positive spin on the fact. That yeah, that's nice. Uh, I appreciate the, the positive spin of the turtle were victorious. All right. Presidential race all along for months. Uh, you've been coming on the show and, and saying that the polls uh, have Biden in the lead. Are uh, you sticking with that? Are you predicting uh, Joseph Biden to be victorious in the election? Yes. It's, it's really hard. We're so close to the election, Ben. Um, the, the polls have not tightened in, in Trump's favor. Um, there have been a couple of points where where Trump has has eroded to the point where he was you know he was losing by twelve you know eleven or twelve points. Those were I think those were artificial low points. One produced by the summer pandemic spike, and the other produced by his like horrendous debate performance and then he got COVID right away <laughs> and behaved like a complete weirdo for a week. So he's he's gained a little bit of ground since I'd say October eighth. But a little bit of ground in this context means going from losing by by 10.7 points on average to, to about 9 to 10 points today. And I just don't see how he makes up that ground when more than half the electorate has, has already cast a ballot. And most of the people that have turned out earlier are, are heavily Democratic. And it's not like no other Democrats are going to show up on Election Day. At a certain point, you just run into a math problem where there's not enough eligible voters left in a state for you to win. Um, I don't think that's entirely driven by early voting, but the, but the polls have been extremely consistent. Um, Joe Biden is going to win by, by eight or nine points nationally. He'll carry Wisconsin and Michigan and Minnesota easily. Pennsylvania, sort of inexplicably to me, looks like it's going to be a little bit closer. But, but Biden is also leading in North Carolina. He's leading in Georgia. He's leading in Florida. 
he's leading in, era, uh, in Arizona. And that adds, that adds up to a lot of electoral votes. And so there'd have to be some really disjunctive event that, that happens between now and Tuesday in order to deliver this race to Donald Trump. There would have to be a, a polling era that was double the polling era in the, in the Midwest to, to deliver this race to Donald Trump. And his closing message has just been the same nonsense that people are so tired of, you know, uh, you know, attacking the media, this weird story about Hunter Biden that been trying to push through Giuliani and Tucker Carlson. I can't believe they're leaning into this stuff at this point. Um, you've, you've still got the president dismissing the pandemic and all of our suffering. I don't think it's a good closing message, man. I think he's, I think he's going to get wiped out on Tuesday. I think it's, I think it's going to be apparent by midnight on election night. I don't think it's going to be very close. Um, we may not know. The networks may not call it for a couple of days because they're going to take some time to count in Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin. But what to look for is if Biden wins Florida or Georgia or North Carolina, which should all be called on election night, this thing is over because Trump simply does not have a path without, without all three of those states. I mean, mathematically, sure, you could do it, but the, but, the, but the practical implication that Biden winning any of those three states would mean that the national environment is so bad for Donald Trump that he's going to, you know, that the other races will be landslides and that Biden will win pretty decisively. Wow. That's great. I love that. Uh, let's not even have the election. Let's just go with that. Uh, uh, <laughs> when this is over, we're going to do uh, a deep dive about Poland. Yeah. And we, I, we don't have enough time to do it now, but I'm just going to put this in your head. So many liberals that I know just freak. We actually did a mini dive on this a while ago, but we got to take a deeper dive have just freaked out over polling. I've told you my Nate Cohn theory that he realizes the way to get clicks is to freak liberals out. So he goes, yeah. well, the polls are showing by that, but wait a minute. If you look at this little one here and then yeah. all these liberals now, they pour money in Amy McGrath, give more money to Amy McGrath. Like she needs it. So we're going to have to deep dive because it's like everyone I ever talk to, I go, well, they go, well, who do you think is going to win? I say, well, I think Joey B's going to win. He's up in the polls. Well, you know, Ben, in uh, 2016, the polls had uh, Trump uh, losing. I go, I, I didn't know that. Your your knowledge of politics is really amazing that you knew that. Right. So anyway, we're going to have to discuss this because I don't think people really understand. I don't think I understand what went down in 2016. I was so depressed by it. I immediately started drinking. And yeah. so, um, yeah. Um, I mean, I can I can take two minutes and run it down if you if you think we have time here. Go ahead, take two minutes. Yeah, you know, in 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 Michigan and Wisconsin and Pennsylvania in particular, most of the big name pollsters did not do a final like five days poll. So the the polling averages were based mostly on on data that was collected um, seven to ten days before the election, and the and the those states looked good enough for Clinton that the, I think they just stopped polling. There were a couple of Republican pollsters that went into these states and showed Trump within shouting distance, if not leading. Um, one of those firms is called Trafalgar, and they have turned into like a weird trolling organization this year. I don't think they're running real polls anymore. Mm -hmm. So if you're if you're worried about them, they accidentally published the crosstabs on one of on a couple of their polls last week, which showed uh, Donald Trump winning young voters by ten votes by, by ten points and getting thirty percent of the black vote. Just stuff that's hilarious, like laugh you out of the room kind of stuff. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I don't know how they got it right in twenty sixteen, but they're definitely not getting it right this year. So there's fewer undecided voters. They're gonna have polls in the field over the last few days. Uh, the New York Times is in the field. Um, and the, just to remember that the national polls were very accurate in twenty sixteen. Um, Clinton's final polling average was about three point five points, three three points depending on which person you're you're doing the aggregating. And she won by two point one nationally. So that's actually one of the better results this century. In terms of the national polling, that the the polls, the national polls in 2018 were very good. Um, the de the Democrats were up eight, eight or so points on what's called the generic ballot, where you ask people, "We vote for a Democrat or Republican for Congress," and they, they ended up winning that vote by 8.4. So there's not a, there's not a ton of evidence that there is a systematic problem with polling across the country, and that's what you would need to see in order for for Donald Trump to be to be actually winning this election, even though every public poll suggests that he's about to get crushed. So. I don't put a lot of I don't put a lot of faith in the theory that the, the polls are broken. Um, if Trump does win, I, I do think polling as an industry will have to have a, a, a really much more painful reckoning than it did in 2016. Yes. But I don't think that that's very likely. Yeah. I think um, my my prediction is Biden is going to win 351 electoral votes. Um, I think he will fall just short in Texas, but he'll win Florida and Georgia, North Carolina, um, all the Midwest battlegrounds, and he'll get those congressional districts in Nebraska and Maine. 
and wow. that adds up to three fifty one. That's a that's a election that should be called um, sometime on election night. Might be in the early hours in the morning, but I think if you're willing to, you know, to, to alternate drinking with um, with sparkling water, you should be able to stay up long enough. <laughs> well, here here's I'm gonna we just Dennis and I made a decision yesterday. Uh, we're having this conversation on Friday, uh, Friday, October 30th. Uh, and the Dennis and I said, you know what? We're going to go live on election night. Cause what else are we going to do? But sitting in our apartment drinking, I don't know how many people are going to listen. I think the uh, people listening later on, I think it'd be a very popular podcast either way. Like I'll be drunk with joy or just drunk with sorrow. It's, I think it'll be funny to listen to anyway. So we may reach out to you on election night uh, to yeah, see what uh, you're up to. Uh, and uh, watching the TV, so I'd be happy to come on. That'd be awesome. Yeah, and 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 you could be one of our correspondents. We joke, uh, Dennis and I will be doing the show, so we won't be paying attention to anything. So we'll be calling friends up. Hey, who's winning? What what an election night show, huh? <laughs> could could you imagine it, Rachel Maddow calling her like her uncle Bob? What's going on? I'm doing a show. I, Anyway, what? Yeah, I'm, in. I'm into that. That sounds awesome. Let's do it. It, it sounds like fun. All right, that's, that's great, that. David Ferris. And we, I wrote down his predictions. I'm going to hold him to him, yep. uh, and I'm really hoping that he's correct because I want this madness to end, David Ferris. Don't we all? Don't we all? Yeah, uh, we're going to get right. this guy. We're going to get him. So we'll see you on Tuesday. Very Thank good. you so much for having me on the show again. Uh, no problem. That's David Ferris. I'm Ben Jarofsky. Take care, everyone.